we've been going through the attributes of God. And the last time I, I spoke, I talked about the sovereignty of God. And there was three parts that I wanted to deal with in that. And uh, last time we spoke about how that God is sovereign over creation. Um, we looked at, you know, God. There, there's no such thing as time until God said in the beginning. Um, God is sovereign over the, the elements. I mean, we see where he stopped winds, he caused winds, he, he parted waters, he walked on water. How he's sovereign over the animals, how that God would speak to animals to do things. He would use animals to speak to men. He would use animals, you know, fish to bring tax money. I mean, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over angels. God is sovereign over Satan and demons. And we looked at that God is sovereign over kingdoms, nations, people in authority. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar, how that he made this great boast about everything he had done in this great kingdom he made, and God had already prophesied, I'd already spoke to him through Daniel that in one year's time that these things that God told him would happen would happen. And at the end of that, Nebuchadnezzar came to the realization there is no God like God. And there is none that can prevent or thwart his hand. He does what he pleases. We, we just talked briefly about Cyrus. I mean, Isaiah prophesied of Cyrus by name. He, he referred to him as a man of the east, a bird of prey, who would come in. And then he was going to be God's anointed servant to do what? To take the people he had in bondage. And that they could go rebuild the temple, and matter of fact, he was going to pay the bill. That's incredible. But today we're going to look at the third part. And this is, this is a, a, a topic that can make me a little nervous. I'm a little nervous today for a couple of reasons. The topic, just what it is. Um, but mostly in my, what I feel like is probably my inability or my inadequacy. I'm probably more nervous about that. This is what John Piper said about the sovereignty of God in salvation. He says, The sovereignty of God is the continental divide of all theology. Does everybody know what the continental divide is? We actually have two that I know of in the States. One's on the East Coast. And what that does is there's a mountain range, and that on one side of that mountain range, all of the water drains in the Atlantic. And on the other side, it all drains into the Gulf of Mexico. There's another continental divide that is on the west coast, runs through the Rocky Mountains. And on one side, all of the water, it comes down and empties through the Gulf of Mexico. And the other side empties into the Pacific Ocean. And John Piper says that the sovereignty of God is the continental divide of all theology. He says one drop of man-centered thought runs down the one side of the mountain into creeks and streams and rivers, ultimately pouring into an ocean of man-centered worship, living, and ministry. But yet, conversely, one drop of theocentric truth that is rooted in the statement, this statement, the Lord reigns. 
It flows down the opposite side of the mountain, and such biblical truth empties into an ocean of God-centered worship, living, and ministry. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. So, what does sovereign mean again? Well, we'll back up. The Latin, it comes from the Latin prefix super, meaning over or above. It is God's exercise of his rule over his creation. When I wrote these notes, there's part of me that wants to write, it's God's exercise of his absolute rule or his complete rule. I find it odd that I have to qualify words like rule and reign and sovereignty with words like absolute. Also, God is sovereign over all his creation. There is not one thing that is not under the sovereign rule of God. Listen, R.C. Sproul, concerning that point, says this. If there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Steve Lawson gave a, a, an, it was an old English um, saying, and I'll try to get this right. It says, for, for loss of a nail, the shoe was, was gone. And for loss of the shoe, the horse came up missing. For lack of the horse, there was no rider. For lack of the rider, the battle was lost. And for lack of loss of the battle, the war was lost. If, if this one minute point, there's something out there that is not under the sovereign rule of God, then we have no assurance of anything. We are left like people watching an event. It's amazing how we can watch sporting events or weddings. Have you ever seen a wedding where the rehearsal was just like chaotic? And, and you come to it and you're like, there's no way this is going to come off. And then when, it, when everything comes off without a problem, everybody's like, wow, that was amazing. But we didn't know it was going to come out like that. You see, God is sovereign. God is not holding his breath. He is not crossing his fingers thinking, I have this great plan. I, I hope with all of my power, I'm all powerful, with all of my knowledge, I hope with all of these things that this all comes out right in the end. You see, folks, that's not what sovereignty means. In order to understand this, Truth, we must understand the, def the definition of what sovereign means. I know I've already given some things, but sovereign simply means the absolute ruler. 1 Timothy 6.15 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now listen, for one to be sovereign, this is what it's going to take to be sovereign. They must be all-powerful. Now, you can't be sovereign. You can't have absolute rule without being all-powerful. Any, any power that's there, 
that anybody has. Even Satan is only there, only obtains it because God has allowed them to have it. You only breathe air today because God has given you strength and ability to do that. So he has to be all-powerful. He has to be all-knowing. There's, there is, there's nothing that God lacks in knowledge in. He knows everything about everything to the nth degree. God must be all-present. We've talked, we've discussed how we've fried our brains, how that God is not only present now, and we know God's going to be in the future, but God is just as much present in the past. He's all present. And lastly, the sovereign ruler must be free. And this is a big part that we need to grasp today. There is only one person one being who is totally and absolutely free to do what he pleases. Now, if I told you that I have all the ability to do what I please, it might excite you, it might scare you, because you don't know what I'm going to do. But if I had the absolute freedom to do whatever I wanted to do, I could torment you, I could do whatever. But here's the confidence we as believers have. God is perfect, God is holy, God is just, God is right. Does not the judge of all the earth do that that is right? You see, God is free of sin, God is free of any prejudice, God is free of any vice. God is absolutely free and therefore the only one who can truly be sovereign. He is the only one. So, if anyone is claiming to be sovereign and does not fit this description, then they are not sovereign at all. If one possesses these things and yet doesn't have the right to exercise their will, then they are not sovereign. And if that is the case, then there is no such thing as sovereign in the truest definition of the world. Do we understand what that means? Now, now we use the word sovereign in a lesser degree. We'll say that's a sovereign kingdom or meaning they are exclusive, they rule their self, you know. But, but in, in, the, in the real true definition of the word sovereign, it means absolute rule. I posted a video a while back. I thought I might say this at the end, and I might refer to it again. But I posted a video on Facebook I came across, and it was a guy named Bill Johnson. Claims to be a pastor. I would have strong argument with that. Bill Johnson said this. He says, the sovereignty of God is so misunderstood. He says, so many people believe that God is in control of everything. He says, God is not in control. It's a big misunderstanding in Christianity. He says, God is in charge, but God is not in control. And he goes on to say this. God has, he says, great, great. Church fathers of the past, these are unnamed great church fathers of the past, according to him, says God has handcuffed himself and he can only do what delegated authority permits him to do. Now, do you know what that means? That is teaching that God has delegated authority to you and I. 
And God can only act when we pray and allow God to enter into the scene of humanity. Now, I just got one question for you. Does that fit your definition of sovereign? That's a great mythical fairy tale, I guess. Something you could probably make a weird movie about. But it does not fit the description of the sovereign God of the Bible. Now, I want you to know something. When it comes to sovereignty in Scripture, church, listen to me. The church does not hide the sovereignty of God. It is there. It is open. Anyone, anyone that does not want to see this, you've got liberal churches who downplay this. You pretty much have to put on a blindfold. You have to put plugs in your ears and not open your Bible up and come up with things like Bill Johnson did. Because it is there. The problem that we have with the sovereignty of God is our refusal to bow the knee and say God has complete rule. As long as I've got the rain somewhat in my hand, I'll tell God he's leading me all day long. That is not the case. What we need to do is we need to we need to start by looking back before time in what we call eternity past. And I'm going to read something to you first over here in, in, in Isaiah 47 9. Listen to this. In 47 or 46, I'm sorry, in, in Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9, I'll read 9 and 10. He says, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now, I want to stop right there real quick. I want to say this. If, if part of the problem is that I can't comprehend a God that has so much power, so much rule, I just, I just can't. Fat, nobody can, can be like that. Because you have to factor in not only all the good things, but you have to factor in all the evil things and say, how in the world is God sovereign and in control over all of that? Is he in control over the things that seem meaningless and pointless and have no impact on anything? Well, we don't know if it has impact or not. See, we're not all-knowing, right? But when it says there's no one like me, listen, if you're trying to serve a God that you can make understandable to be somewhat like you, you are committing what we call idolatry, and you've made a God to fit your image. And that's serious. Now he says, declaring, now listen to me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. I, I hear quoted a lot. People will say, yes, I know that God knows the end from the beginning. And that is true. But that is not what this verse just said. This verse said, God has declared the end. God has decreed. He has said how the end is going to be. And he did it before there was any such thing as time. And he says, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, we're going to look at those words, but I want to read something to you just real quick over here in Proverbs. And you just hang with me. 
and pray for me that on time's sake today. In Proverbs 19:21, listen to this. It says, "Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand." Man has a lot of ideas, a lot of plans, a lot of things he's going to do or not do, but I'm going to tell you this, it's only the purpose of God that's going to stand and come to pass in the end. Now, if you will, would you turn your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 1? I'm not going to read all of that verse, this chapter at this point, but I want to read something to you. We talk a lot in, you know, in verse 4, you know, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And I will get back to that. And we, we focus a lot on that. But I want you, if you would, to look down in verse 11. Okay? And this is what it says. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, Steve Lawson says we must get these. He says any good preacher, any good theologian will put these in proper order. And thank God he gave me the order to put these in, okay? He says what we first start with is we start with the word counsel. Council was what? It was that divine meeting of the triune Godhead. Where, where, where in eternity past, God decided what he, every, how everything was going to be. I mean, we look around and we see colors. We see all these different things, how everything operates. It was in that council that God made choice of those things. And out of the council came God's will. And, and what that is, is it is his divine, uh, divine decision. It's, it's concerning all things that are going to come to pass. It's saying, this is what God is going to do. And out of God's will came God's purpose. And that was the divine, divine determined result. And out of the purpose came predestination. That is to determine or decree beforehand what God has predestined out of his counsel, his will, his purpose. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. And it cannot be stopped. I want you to understand something. So many people, when they go through the scriptures and they'll read in Genesis and they'll say, God looked upon man and he was sorry that he made man and he was just going to wipe them all out. But Noah found grace. God's original plan failed. Well, actually, they start back in, in, in the garden. Adam failed. He had to go to plan B. When he gets to Noah, I guess we're into plan C. Failure after failure. I want you to understand something. When you're dealing with a perfect all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and free to do as he pleases God. There is no plan B or C. Matter of fact, there is no plan A. There is simply God's plan. And what God has planned, what God has purposed... It will, it is going to come to pass exactly the way that God has counseled it would. Why? 
because God is sovereign. So we, we see first that there's this council. And out of the council came God's will. And out of God's will came God's purpose. And out of God's purpose, He predestined. He determined, decreed beforehand how things would be. So we look back, we see the fall in Genesis 1.31. It says, God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And then in, Ju- in Genesis 2.16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So right there in the first two chapters of Genesis, first three, we see where God, he, he just created everything and everything was good and it was perfect. When God looks at things and says it's good, it's good. And then man is deceived. It's, it's, you know, Eve is tempted by Satan and She eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She gives it to Adam. Adam eats willingly. He knows. Sin enters. In Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's the problem today. Here's the problem we have. Every human being born into this world is born with a sin nature. Um, The other night, Kobe and Amy were over at the house. Little Brentley, their oldest one, he demonstrated very well that he has a sin nature. And to the best of my understanding, Kobe and Amy did not teach him to have a sin nature. But he has one. He was furious. I mean, man, he's hitting his mom and he's shaking his fist. If he'd have been the size of Paul Wilson, I think we probably all would have been massacred that night in the living room. Because he wanted that thing he was hitting things with. He wanted it back. He had to have it back. We don't we don't become sinners because we sin. We are sinners because we have a sin nature. Okay? Man was created without sin, but but he had the ability to, to sin. We see that in Adam. One man sinned and was separated. Once man sinned, he was separated from God, and now he possesses a sin nature. Every person is born with this fallen, sinful nature separated from God. The question now is, does fallen man have the ability... Does he have the mind? Is he able to make the choice to be saved? This is, this is one of the greatest debates in Christendom. And it all stems from the sovereignty of God. So, what saith the Scriptures in the Old King James? What saith the Scriptures? What does the Bible have to say about this? Well, here's what we want to look at today. You got your Bibles handy with you? I want to turn to first, or Second Corinthians chapter two. We're going to read a little bit right there, real quick, and I'm going to try to be brief. Now, listen, I want you to understand something. I'm, I'm highlighting a few verses as we go through this. I'm not trying to pick and choose. I, listen, if you want to come to me afterwards, I have a lot of scriptures on every one of these points. Okay, and I will try to answer some of the objections as we go. 
But first of all, we start with just the natural man. The question is, does, can the natural man, can he do anything good? Can he do things in order to please God, okay? Does he have the ability to say, you know what, I want to follow Christ? In 2 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 10, I've got to make sure I'm in the right... I'm sorry, I keep saying 2 Corinthians. I'm looking at chapter 2. Go to 1 Corinthians, I think. Yes, let's go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 10. He says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Talking to believers. He said, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? which is in him. He said, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. He's talking to people who have been born again. We receive the Spirit of God. We understand when we read. We understand what God is saying. And he says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. But then he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we read this, and what do we come to? We say, well... The natural man, the, the man who is unregenerate, not being born again, he doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Have you ever wondered how two people can be sta- sitting in a church service, in a revival meeting or whatever, they're best friends, they're sitting there shoulder to shoulder, the message is exactly the same to each one in their ears. One walks away and says, this is foolishness. The other falls to his knees and cries out, God, forgive me. What is the difference? Is one smarter? Does one have a better grasp? We see people who are geniuses at times come to Christ. We see people who can't read come to Christ. Here's what I can tell you. Unless the Spirit of God breaks in on you, your ears are deaf. Your eyes are blind and you will not see. You will not believe. It will be absolute foolishness to you. People say, well, but but what about, but we've got to receive it, though. I've heard so many people say, well, there's nothing we can do, but we have to receive what God has did. That's our part. I say that. And I say, well, okay. And they, they, a lot of times we'll take you over to John chapter 1, and I'll just read that real quick. It's one of the objections. I try to be fair. When, we, when, we, when I preach on these things, listen to this. He says he, in, in chapter 1, and I'll just begin in verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And people say, look, Ronnie, right there. See, these people received God. And he gave them who received him the right to become the children of God. But wait, read the next verse. Who were born, not of blood, 
not of your lineages, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 12 actually precedes verse 11 in the actuality of how God saves a man. They are born from above. There's nothing you can do to be born of the Spirit of God. No more than there's anything you could do to be born physically into this world. You had really nothing to do with it. So we see these things. Okay, look in, look in, look in Romans chapter 3. I hear people say all the time, I've been seeking God my whole life. And you know what? I, I, listen, I'm not, I'm not, if I'm sounding harsh on things, I want you to know that what I'm teaching you today or attempting to teach, I was in total opposition to this. I was like, this is crazy. And so I devised a plan, and my plan didn't really fit into the flip side of this, and I had it great, and I had it all down. The only problem was when I started reading the Bible, it, my plan fell apart. Okay? Now listen, in Romans chapter 3, we read this. Now Paul has just spent two full chapters showing that the depravity, the sinfulness of men, it didn't matter if you were Gentile or Jew, you were lost, you've been concluded in sin. Listen, he says in verse 9, he says, What then, are the Jews any better off? I mean, he just got through saying that they've been given the oracles of God. They've been given the, all of these things. He said, Are we better off? He says, No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. They're all under condemnation. As it is written, now listen to this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. When you read that and you think, no, no, God, I've been seeking you. No, you've been seeking a God to fit what you do. I was in the prison one night and a guy told me, I asked him how he's doing. We'd gone through this weekend, it's kind of this ministry thing that's really terrible. And I had to figure that out and no longer do it. But I was sitting with this inmate who when he came to that four-day weekend, he came there that the two days before he was plotting to kill another inmate on the yard. He was in there for murder. And God providentially puts this guy right across the table from me. He's telling me, I don't know why I'm here. I hate all these people. White supremacist type guy. I just keep talking to him, keep sharing the gospel with him. By the end of the weekend, man, he feels like he's a Christian. I go in to visit him, and he says, I've been struggling with some things. I said, well, tell me what. And he goes, because I asked him, I said, how are you doing? Man, I'm doing great. I'm growing in the Lord and all this and that. And he said, but i got some questions. I said, what are they? I've got a couple problems. What is it? I'm really having a hard time believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Just not really believing that. And I said, okay. I said, well, well, here's his word. What is his word? So he says, well, that's another problem. I'm really having a problem that's really the Word of God. So I just put my Bible down, and I said, well, I said, let's do this. Why don't you tell me about your God? He goes, what? I said, well, tell me about your God, because you told me you're growing closer. You're growing in the Lord, and you're getting closer, and you're doing better. So what does your God require for you to know that? What is his standard? Because your God is not the God of Scripture. 
Because you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No, no. I said, because you don't even believe this is his word. And all of a sudden he goes, no, no, no. I believe that's his word. And I said, well, we're back to square one. That's going to tell you that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, people are not seeking God because God says they're not seeking Him. They're seeking a God just like the people in the old when they would make a little statue or a little thing out of wood and they'd have to pack it on their animal. Today we would load it up in our car and bring our God with us. There's nobody that's seeking God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You're like, Brother Ronnie, you can't tell me I don't do anything good. Now, I'll tell you this. You've never done anything good outside of Christ. Never. Because no unbeliever can do anything to the glory of God. Because they are God-haters. Oh, no, I'm not a God-hater. Yes, you are. If you're not in Christ, you are a God-hater. You may, not, you may view hate in a different way. But you are the enemy of God. So we've got two problems already. The natural man can't receive the things of God. He can't even hear him. we got in our own self, we, we don't seek God. We're not good. There's nothing we do that's ever been good. We've got a third problem. Oh, third problem is this. I missed my note there. It was small. Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In those three verses, you know how God has just described fallen man? You are dead. You are disobedient. You are depraved. And you are doomed. I, I, when I was in the prison one night, a guy in there, now there's a lot of health and wealth, prosperity stuff in the prison. And my drummer in the worship team at that time, he's leaving. He goes, I'm sick and tired of all this negativity. I want to hear something positive about this. So that's what I preach next time. I said, you want to hear your part in salvation? Here it is. And I said, make no mistake, you played it well. Not because they were in prison, but because they were sinners. Folks, here's the thing. The natural person is dead. He is spiritually dead. I tell people all the time, I said, you can go out to a graveyard and you can offer everyone in the ground $100 an hour for the rest of their life to go help you work. And no one is going with you because they are dead. They are physically dead. They are dead to anything physical. Spiritually dead, it goes back to the natural man. He cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Something has to happen in order for that man to be alive. Now, if somebody miraculously went to the graveyard and miraculously raised up those dead people, you might be in a lot of trouble with your offer. So the natural man can't do it. You don't seek God. You're not good enough. You're dead. Now, here's a, here's a fourth problem. If you go to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4. In Ephesians, it just told us how the, 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 the disobedient walk according to the prince of the power of the air, talking about Satan. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, in beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now listen to this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now you've got a fourth problem. As an unbeliever, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those people that do not see or hear the gospel. What's he blinded them with? Lies, fame, money, drugs, sex, whatever it is. He keeps them captivated. They, they see a little bit. I mean, like I see what you're saying. I remember talking to a guy in Ardmore on the street. We was out evangelizing. He's on his way to a party to get some more drugs. And I'm going, listen. I don't remember his name offhand, but I said, do you understand what I'm telling you? He goes, yes, he spelled it out. He goes, I'm, I'm lost. I know if I die today, I'm going to hell. But I don't have time for this. I've got to get to this party. And I'm going, are you? See, there's still that part of me that's going, you just want to shake them out of it. But they can't receive it. Fifthly, John chapter 12. John chapter 12 says this, beginning in verse 35. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, he said, The light is among you for a little while longer. Talking about Jesus in his earthly ministry. He says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He said, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus had said these things. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? Or Lord, he says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Who is the He? God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Now, do you remember when we started the attributes of God? The most dangerous thing about the attributes of God is this. How God has revealed himself in Scripture, we get to the end of this, you may not like the God of the Bible. 
And what the problem is, because things have been taught not biblically for so long, we've de- we develop this idea of what we think God is like, and we take passages and try to make that be true. All of a sudden, what God's truth says is foreign to our ears. Folks, this is the Word of God. We heard last week, you want true revival? It starts with the Word of God. It's seeing God for who He is in all of His glory, in all of His attributes. You can't just pick and choose and say, I like the God of love, I like the God of hope, I like the God who's good. But not that one who pours out His wrath on unbelievers, not that one who punishes the way I don't that one I let's just let's put it aside. That's just not good teaching. And finally fallen man can't even come to God unless God granted. In John six sixty five he says this This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. If you've ever had a wayward child, you talk and you talk and you preach and you preach and you shake them and you say, what do you think is going to happen if you die today? I don't think I'd make it. What are you going to do? You see, this is where it gets tough because this is that part where we don't like the sovereignty of God when God doesn't do it the way that I want Him to do it. told somebody the other day, a young guy asked me, how do you evangelize? How do you share the gospel? He said, man, I feel like a failure. I meant to, I wanted to go back and tell this girl about Jesus, but I didn't even know how to do it. And he says, now I don't know if I'll get another chance. And I said, well, don't look at it as, don't beat yourself up. It'll do this. Learn from it. I said, I have an uncle that committed suicide about five years ago and he is in hell today. And I can't tell you how many times it came to my mind. I want to share the gospel with him. He had a he had a horrible life growing up. He had a a very abusive father. He he was in a life of just stealing and stuff. He went to prison at an early age, spent most of his life behind bars. When he got out, he was still in bondage to, to, to drugs and alcohol and I love that guy though. And I would say, okay, this time I'm going to do it. This time I'm going to do it. And I said, you know what I can't do? I can't ever go back and do it again. Now, a lot of people, what do they do? Well, we don't know. We, We don't know what God will do. We do know what God will do. Anyone who dies outside of Christ is going to be under the wrath of God in hell for eternity. We do know. So we see the fallen man, therefore, is unable to do anything good to accompany salvation. His his nature is fallen. He can't do it. He can't see it, hear it. 
He doesn't have a will to seek God. He's spiritually dead. He's blinded by Satan. He's blinded by God. And God has to be the one to open his eyes and regenerate him. So who can be saved then? Point two. Well, we go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to have to try to hurry. I'm looking at the time and I don't want to weary you. I don't want to keep you late. I do feel like this is very of the utmost importance. So who can be saved? Well, this is the great question. Who can be saved? Listen to what Ephesians chapter 1 says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So what do we see just in that right there? What do we see? God has a people. Listen, nobody in this room, to my knowledge, believes that God is going to save everybody, right? Now, if you are, we need to talk later. If you do believe that. So here's here's the thing. There are people that are going to be saved. So how can they be saved? If we are totally unable to do it, and I do believe that's the biblical position, then how can anyone be saved? Well, it's because in eternity past, God set His affection, He set His love on His people. Listen to this in Romans chapter 8. Listen to what he says. Chapter 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God... Now, who would that be? Believers? Yes. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. You go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He says, We've been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You need to understand something. Some of you in here today, you look at your life and you go, Man, I had horrible parents. I hate them. I didn't even have parents. I hate them. You don't know what my life was like. I was this. I was that. I was raised a minority. People pick, you know, whatever it is, I want you to know that, yes, God is in control of all things. And in those all things, the parents, the place you live, the color of your skin, the school you went to, the school you didn't go to, everything, all things were working together for your good to come to Christ in Christ. All things. And he goes on here and he says, for those who are called according to His purpose. We see these these, these key words all through this. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. Now, whom He foreknew. The Greek word, and Paul's probably going to get on to me. I've missed all the Greek stuff, but I'm either going to say prognosko or progenosko. It's those whom God set his affection on in eternity past when this council met together. 
According to Zodiades, he says it includes a determining on God's part to fellowship with believers. Now listen, with whom God had before, beforehand entered into fellowship. That God in eternity past set his affection, he set his love on a certain people. The idea that this foreknowledge, is it goes back to God knows the end from the beginning. Foreknowledge. See, here's the problem with foreknowledge. It actually shows that God is not all-knowing because God had to look ahead and see who would choose him, and God would react to that, and that would be his elect. You see, what you miss in that is this. If that is true, then God at one point did not know everything. He had to look ahead and learn. He had to see who was going to do this. That's not the foreknowledge of Scripture. Now, that was what I came up with. First guy that came across, he heard me preaching on the grace of God. And he tells me, he says, man, brother, I think he's going to be able to work to get I heard about this guy. He said, I'm a full-blown five-point Calvin. I thought, I've heard about them crazy people. They're nuts. That's what I really thought. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I said. And so he starts telling me this stuff. So I said, oh, man, this is so simple. And I remember 828, I came to that conclusion. I thought, this is so simple. I can't believe nobody's thought of this. God looked ahead. He saw, and he did this. And my problem was I started. I kept reading, and, and, it, and it did not add up. And why did it not add up? Well, I'm going to read that to you, too. But before I get to this next part, I want to show you something. I want to ask you something. If this is not true, if this is not true, when Jer- Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, 5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, he says, I knew you. And I've called you for this purpose. So, you got Jeremiah. Then in Paul, in Galatians 1, 15, he says, When he who had set me apart... Wait. When, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace... I guess I got to ask you a question: Is Jeremiah and Paul are they just isolated cases? I mean, was it just Jeremiah that God knew before he was born? Was it just Paul that he knew before he was born, and he called them for a special purpose? But the rest of us are just fish in a fishbowl. We're just kind of random, generic, general. You know, Ob didn't really know about you, but welcome in. No. God could write to O.B. and say, before I knew you, I mean, before you were born, before I knew you, before you were born, I knew you and I called you for this purpose. That can be written of every believer. And so we turn to Romans chapter 9, and let's look there. Beginning in verse 6, he says this, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He says, For all who are descended from Israel... For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, he's dealing with the nation of Israel, and Paul's heart is broken over them. And he says, And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But 
through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He said, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as, not, as offspring. So it's, it's not those who were born as Israelites, but it's those who were promised. And when were they promised? They were promised in that council, of, and his will came out of that, and his purpose came out of his will, and his predestination came out of his purpose. And we, every believer in here, is, is a child of promise. He says, for this is what the promise said. He says, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, he says, now she had born these twins, Jacob and Esau, and he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, he says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul anticipates the argument, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? When you hear things like this, I've had people tell me so many times, for God so loved the world, God loves everybody. I said, well, he didn't love Esau. Well, that hate doesn't mean hate, Ron. Hate means that he loved him a little less. Well, that hate comes from the Hebrew, and that hate means hate. The hate in the New Testament, in the Greek, means to love less. But the hate in the Hebrew means God hated Esau. That's not fair. Wait a second. Is God all-powerful? Is God all-knowing? Is God all-present? Is God free to do as he pleases? Is what God does, is it always right? See, Paul's anticipating the argument all the way through this. There, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, now listen to this. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now listen, verse 16 is the key to this. He says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Who can be saved? Who God has elected from eternity past. The one that God has mercy on. Now, let me just be honest with you. Do I struggle with that doctrine? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times I do. I think, man, God, you could have you saved everybody. You, you could have just done it all. You see, we don't know the mind of God in, in the fullness. And I want you to know this. In eternity, however long we're there, and we can't even say it like that, but we will always be learning. We will never come to the place where we have God figured out, even in eternity. So do I understand it? No. But is it what the Word of God teaches? Yes. What, what's he go on and say about this? You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Now listen to this. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Listen to these words. 
Will that, will, he says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It is not, listen, it is one thing to say, God, I don't understand this. It's quite another to say, God, you are unjust. You are not fair. It is not right what you're doing. Paris Reedhead, Reedhead in his sermon, Ten Shekels and a Shirt, he says at one time in his life, he was going to go to Africa and he was going to save those poor, innocent heathens. The problem was when he got there, they weren't poor, innocent heathens. They were wicked sinners, deserving of the wrath of God. See, we start off, it's funny how we talk about the poor, innocent people. Show me one. It's like trying to find the good moral atheist. That guy has never showed up in the conversation yet because he doesn't exist. He goes on and he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath, listen, prepared for destruction? Yeah, this is, this is hard truth. Listen to what Spurgeon, a couple things Spurgeon said on, on election. He said, to me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. They don't like it. And, I, and listen, a part of me, I understand why you don't like it. But at the end of the day, you have to come back and say, is it true? It doesn't matter if I like it. Is it true? Spurgeon says again, he says, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should not have chosen him. And I am sure that I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chose me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should look upon me with such special love. You ever listen to your own testimony? It's funny how people talking to a free will Baptist pastor one day, and he says, I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God. I'm like, amen, this guy's coming around. Yet, I reserve the right to walk away from God if I so choose. And I'm like, well, that's a big, bold statement of nothing. Have you ever listened to your own testimony? How are you here today, by God's grace? How did God save you, man? One day I said, and I wasn't even looking for him, but God opened my eyes to the truth, and I just had to come to Christ. You got the Holy Spirit? How'd you get it? God gave it to me. Do you have a gift? Yes, the Lord gave it to me. How do you use that? God leads me in it. God equips me. God has given me a new heart. He's given me eyes to see. He's given me ears to hear. I just want to know at what point in your testimony are you taking any credit for anything there? Nowhere. Nowhere. So the conclusion is this. God did not save you because he, he looked in the future and he saw that you would choose him and therefore he chose you. He didn't see anything good in you. He didn't, he, he didn't save you because you were more intelligent, you, had, you were smarter, you were stronger. That you, you hear this all the time. Boy, if God could save that person, that guy's got a lot of potential to be used. No, God did not look at Dustin and say, you got a lot of potential, brother. I can use a man like you. Although that's what you hear Jesse Duplantis says, I need you, boy. I need you. 
God, who is in need of nothing, needs Jesse to plant us. All right. You know why God chose you? Do you know who can be saved? It's those who God has set his love on before eternity or before time in eternity. And he chose you because it pleased him. Because it pleased him. Who did Christ die for? Well, his elect. Here's three. Here's two views I want you to listen to. Did, did Christ die? Did he die for all of the sins of all men? Or did he die for all of the sins of some men? If the first point is true, if he died for all of the sins of all men, if this is true, then all men are saved. Do you understand that? If he died for all the sins of all men, then everybody is saved. You go, well, how's that? Well, because he died for all the sins of all the men. But, but, but they don't believe. Wait a second. Unbelief is a sin. And if Christ died for all the sins of all the people, then everybody is saved. And we can just sing and we don't got to. Everybody's saved. Matter of fact, if Jesus, when he died on the cross, he paid for the sins of all men, then there's no way anybody can go to hell. You say, well, how's that? And people will say, well, you've got to receive it. We've already dealt with receiving. No, you don't understand what was happened. Jesus paid. He paid it already. The sin debt is paid for. So here's the thing. If, if Jesus died for all the sins of everybody and anybody goes to hell, God is no longer just because he took double payment for sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross and then this person had to go to hell. He took payment in Christ's death. He took payment in your death. If a judge did that, we would fire him. We would probably put him in prison for being unjust. But if Jesus died for all of the sins of some men, if this is true, then Christ suffered and died for all the sins of all that God has predestined to eternal life. Another point in this is this. Jesus says in Matthew 21 or 121, he says he will save his people from their sins. It does not say he will try to save his people from their sins. He's making the offer to save people from their sins. No, it says he will. So here's the deal. If Jesus died for all the sins of all people, then he failed. And if he failed, he is not sovereign. He was a good man and he tried hard, but he is not sovereign. John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. John 17, 6. Jesus is praying. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read this. Um, John chapter 17, 6. And listen to this. Jesus says, I, he's praying, he says, I have manifested your name to the people, speaking to his Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now listen to this language. He says, yours they were. How were they his? Because God foreknew them. He set his love on them in eternity past. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now you say, well, Brother Ron, he's talking just to his disciples. Okay, look down in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Same context. Those that were yours, you've given to me, it's, they're still coming in today. They're still coming in today. I'm running out of time. Briefly, I'm gonna, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his... Only begotten son. Well, that's the end of a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And if you go back and look, I don't really have time right this moment, but if you go back and look, I say that, and I, I can't do it like that. Look at, If you look at 3.15, he says this, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus and the Jews were looking for their Messiah. They thought, hey, we think this may be the guy. Jesus, he comes with flattery. We know that you're from God because of the signs, the things you're doing. Nobody And Jesus responded with, you must be born again or you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. What a way to answer flattery. And then he comes down here in verse 15 and he says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus has no problem with that. Yes, Lord, us Jews are looking for our Savior, our King, our Messiah. But then he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus' jaw hit the, hit the floor at that point because he just told him, he said, It isn't just for the Jews only. It is for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That, the Jews missed that part. They missed that part. There are some others I could go into. I don't have time. The conclusion is this. Either Christ died for those whom God appointed to eternal life from eternity past, thus fulfilling God's plan, or Christ died for all, but only some believed. Therefore, God's desire and plan failed to, the, to, the, 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 to what God wanted it to accomplish. Brethren, either God is absolutely sovereign or he is not. Okay? Fourth point is this. All of the elect will come. They will come to God. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I, mean, I just got to turn over to John and read the, the you know this. Um, actually, I'm in John. Just got to stay there and find the right chapter. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In 644, he goes down and he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's, it is taught often that this draw him is this wooing. That's like, oh, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He wouldn't do, make anybody do anything. But he's just like, you know, woo, you know. Oh, man, you're like you know, trying to, I don't know, get a little kid to come to you or a dog or something. And they're looking at you like, I don't think, no. That word draw there is the same word that's used in other places in the Bible for drag. God will bring you to him. Okay? And, and people just get, they get so mad like, well, there, he's violating my will. You want God to violate your will in that sense. If you're left to your own, you will die and go to hell. In 665, 
He says, Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I've got to be really quick with this, but the testimony of Paul, it's going to fly in the face of those, uh, that, that idea that you know, the Holy Spirit, the gentleman. He says this. He, says, I, he talked about he was convinced that, that this, this Jesus and all these things, they were opposing God. And so he's now persecuting the church. He's putting them. He, he says in verse in 26, 11 of Acts, he says, I punished them often in all synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, that doesn't sound like I'm seeking God. He was. He was seeking the God that he thought he knew in the Old Testament, and he missed it. He's persecuting the church. He's persecuting Christ. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. This purpose again. Remember what he said in Galatians? From before the time I was born, God had called me to this. He says, I'm going to appoint you as a servant to, and a witness of the things which you have seen me, you, which you have seen me, and to, and to those in which I will appear to you. And he goes on talking about what he was going to do. Just think about that a moment, brethren. If this is true, where's this idea that the Lord came to Paul and he just gently spoke? And he says, Paul, you know, just, no. A light shone. Paul and him, they fall to the ground. He hears this voice. And God tells him, he says, I am Jesus and you're persecuting me, but I have appointed you for this purpose. You're going to suffer. You're going to do all these things. Do you see Paul going, he's violated my will. No, look in, look in Philippians chapter 3. He says this. He says, he talks about all the qualifications that he had, you know, that if you want to boast about being a Jew, he says, I can out boast all of you. But then he says in verse 7 of chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Was Paul brainwashed, or did Paul have a new heart? Did he have a new nature being born again? Everyone that that is born, I mean, that has been elected, will come to him. The objections people have is this. Well, if God has already chosen and elect people, why do we even evangelize? I mean, if he's already done it and we guarantee they're going to come, why evangelize? Well, in God's counsel of ordaining everything and purpose, will, all that, not only did he appoint who would come, but God also ordained the means by which they would come. And they're only going to come through the preaching of the gospel.
And church, that's why it's so important for you and I to go, because even though God's going to do it, he's going to do it through you. If you go back, I don't have time to get into all that and in God's sovereignty, how he uses everybody to do everything that he's going to do in all, uh, every way possible. So fifthly, God is going to keep us. John six thirty seven, he says, he'll never cast us out. 39 through 44, he says, everyone that it's God's will that he's given us, everyone that he, that's going to come, he says he's going to raise every one of them up on the last day. John Chapter 10, 28, and 29, he says, No one's going to be able to snatch us out of Jesus' hand. And he says, And no, and he says, And we're in the Father's hand, and no one will be able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. It's amazing to me how people will add to that. They'll say, Except yourself. Nate, you remember carrying the babies around? They could wiggle all they wanted. They weren't jumping out of your arms. That's not even to be compared to us being in the hand of God. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He talks about what's been done for us, Christ being given for us. No one can condemn us. No one can lay a charge to us. Nothing. He says, he goes on down at the bottom and he says, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, anything else in all creation. Listen, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I looked on my Facebook feed this morning or something, and, and there's a, a girl on there. And she says, um, once saved, always saved. Can anybody tell me their thoughts on this? I'm just going to tell you straight up. I don't like the term once saved, always saved because it has produced exactly what has happened. Once I'm saved, doesn't matter what I do. I mean, I'm sure in the beginning the guy that coined that probably was a genuine guy. But somewhere through the, through time, it's been just like, man, I'm saved. Doesn't matter if I go do this. I can go party the night before, have sex with my girlfriend. But I'll come to church because once saved, always saved. No, what he's saying is this: when God set His love on you in eternity, and He chose you, He chose you in eternity. He saved you in time. Everything is working in your life that God would save you. God is going to keep you saved because it has been according to the counsel of the Godhead, and out of that came his will, and out of his will came his purpose, and out of his purpose came that predestination of all his people, and there is no way possible that anything can thwart the plan of God in your salvation. So what am I coming to at the end of all this? The conclusion is this, truly... The sovereignty of God is the continental divide in all of theology. I mean, today, I promise you, there's some of you that's like, yeah, Ron, Steve Lawson preached it better, but not bad. And some of you, you don't like this. Listen, I encourage you, I plead with you, take your time. Let me ask you something. What benefit in the world do I have to believe this? Why in the world would I want to believe this? There's only one reason. Because I want to know God the way Paul spoke of knowing Him. And the only way that I'm going to know God in that kind of depth is knowing Him in His Word, how He has revealed Himself. Even the parts I struggle with. 
So yes, in this, in this doctrine, this continental divide, I want you to understand that once you start on this other side and you start going, well, yes, God did this, but I had to do this. Or, or yes, God is sovereign, but not over here. Once you start going down that trail, you wind up like where Bill Johnson's at. Where you're teaching people that God's in charge, but he's not in control. He said, are you serious? You think God is in control of Hitler? Yeah. I absolutely believe that God is in absolute control of everything Hitler did. He goes, why would God have him, you know, be in control of that and have his people pray against such things? He's told us we're to pray for peace. We're to pray for... But in that, we always come, we say, but Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Prayer is not to permit God to act in this world. Prayer is not for God to change, you know, for God to react to your prayers. Like I see these signs like prayer changes things. You know what prayer changes? It changes you. What prayer does, it changes you that your mind conforms to the will of God. I tried to make my wife see the truth. I told her all the facts, all the evidence. She's stubborn. So I came to the end of that rope, and I said, Lord, I've done everything a man can do. She knows it's true. She won't admit it. I know she knows it. I'm not really mad at my wife. So you know what my prayer was? Here she is, Lord. She's in your hands. See what you can do. That's pretty much the way I said it. And I knew as I was saying that was not the right way to pray. Guess what? God says, well, okay. I already had a plan in place anyway. I don't know why you're so frustrated. God, you, you either believe that God is absolutely sovereign and therefore all glory, praise, and honor go to him. One of the most exciting things that ever happened to me was when I started realizing this truth. I'm driving down the road, and all of a sudden when I realized what had happened in my life, I realized that none of the glory went to me. I remember, I remember throwing my hands up as I was driving. That's probably not the way to drive. But I said, oh, my gosh, all of the glory goes to God. And that excited me. I didn't want the glory. I wanted God to get all of it. Or you believe that similar to Bill Johnson, and you may think he's crazy, too. You may not agree with me, but you may think he's crazy. But I'm telling you, this is where this stuff originates from Bill Johnson's view that God is not in charge. He's he's not he's only he's he's, or he's in charge, but he's not in control. He's like a boss, but he's not in control. And God can only do what His delegated authority allows Him to do through prayer. Let me tell you something. The the, the comments that came out of that video, it got pretty heated. I, I was I was in just disbelief. I know it's there, but every time it happens, I just can't believe it. I don't see anything wrong with this. God can only act if we let him act. And I'm like, I said, man, you are one wicked person then. I said, you ought to be in the, the hospital. John wouldn't even have a job, man. If those guys would just do that delegated authority, man, and uncuff God's hands where he can go in there and heal everybody. That's the way they say it. If 
If that's true and God can only do what his delegated authority allows him to do through prayer, if this is true, now listen to this, if, if this is true, God is not sovereign and we have no assurance of anything, especially our salvation, especially our salvation.